This is Sea Power, the podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I'm delighted to host today's conversation with Dr. John Maurer, the Alfred Thayer Mahan Professor of Sea Power and Grand Strategy in the Strategy and Policy Department here at the Naval War College. We're going to discuss the interwar great power competition in Asia, the theme of Professor Mara's recent edited volume, The Road to Pearl Harbor. The protracted struggle for sea power in East Asia is a central theme in this work, as well as his prior scholarship. So we're very fortunate to have Professor Maurer with us today to enlighten us on this pivotal and all too contemporary geopolitical problem. We'll cover the high-stakes diplomacy of the interwar era and key in on the great power's ambitious and abortive efforts to check naval arms racing and avert catastrophic conflict. Before we get underway, the views presented here do not reflect official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. Professor Maurer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Isaac, for having me. It is a distinct pleasure. And before we jump into your fascinating volume. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what it means to be the Alfred Thayer Mahan Professor of Sea Power and Grand Strategy here at the Naval War College. The Naval War College has several named chairs that the faculty can be given. And the Alfred Thayer Mahan Chair has been typically located in the Strategy and Policy Department of the Naval War College. And the holder of the chair is typically the chair of that department, the strategy and policy department. And so when I became chair of the strategy and policy department, I was given uh, the title of the Alfred Thayer Mahan chair. And so I've held that chair uh, since the time I was as chair of the, of the department. It's an important chair to be able to highlight the role of sea power, maritime strategy, naval warfare, and naval history in the curriculum of the Naval War College in our strategy courses that we teach here in Newport. So with that intact and our understanding of how you're approaching the road to Pearl Harbor, which is to say this interwar period of great power competition, can you help set the stage a bit for us to understand what the international environment looked like at the dawn of the interwar period? Who are the main powers and what were their geopolitical positions and objectives? A major change uh, had taken place, obviously, with the end of the First World War. Before the First World War, Imperial Germany was the most important power challenging the international status quo. Great Britain was the leading world power at the time. Britain and its empire encompassed one quarter of the world's landmass and also one quarter of the world's population. Germany was a challenger to Britain and had built up a great navy before the First World War. But in the First World War, Imperial Germany's defeat, uh, its navy disappeared. It was no longer the threat to Britain. However, during the war, the First World War, it spurred a naval buildup on the part of two other great powers, the United States and Imperial Japan. And so at the end of the First World War, Britain, the world's leading naval power, now found itself being challenged by two other great powers, Japan and the United States. These two countries were building up very powerful navies. And so Britain, war-weary, having suffered heavy losses during the First World War, found itself facing a serious challenge from these two powers. And so that sets the stage 
for the interwar period. When you look at it from naval rivalries, competitions taking place, that Britain, the world's leading naval power, now faced these two very serious naval challenges uh, to their leadership of the international system. And in the hierarchy of great naval powers, these two powers were threatening Britain's lead. Mm -hmm. And so as they moved into the interwar period, what were the key dynamics and sources of contention or, or sort of high stakes diplomacy going on among these various rising and established naval powers on the global stage? The First World War had involved uh, a great struggle over the world's maritime commons. Germany tried to disrupt Britain's command of the maritime commons. Its submarine offensive did immense amount of damage to merchant shipping during the First World War. German submarines sank almost 12 million tons of shipping during the First World War. And so Britain, this global empire, spread around the world with uh, the empire linked together by sea lines of communication. Britons of the time believed that they needed to have a navy stronger than any other in the world. Now, Britain had also used its dominance at sea to blockade Germany, to hurt Germany's economy, by cutting it off from access to world markets and supplies. This meant interfering with the trade of neutral states. The United States, which was neutral during most of the First World War, looked at the way that Germany and Britain were interfering with commerce on the world's commons. Uh, the German sinking ships, the Britons, uh, Britain restricting shipping, uh, and the United States also saw that the Atlantic was this battleground. Uh, an important battleground in the war. Whoever could win the Battle of the Atlantic in the First World War would prove to be the victor in the World War. And so the United States was spurred to build up a great navy. And so in August of 1916, uh, the Congress passed uh, a legislation to fund a navy that was as large as any other navy in the world. In other words, the United States was building toward a navy that would be as strong, if not stronger, than that of Great Britain. And so the First World War, the chaos, the tumult of the First World War ended up uh, propelling the U.S. to build up a much larger navy than what Americans were accustomed to have. Meanwhile, in the Far East, Japan had ambitions. While the European great powers were fighting each other, Japan saw this as an opportunity to expand its empire in East Asia. And so Japan was also building up its navy to further its imperial ambitions in Asia while the great European powers were concentrated, focused on fighting the war in Europe. So you have this geopolitical challenge that's taking place as Japan is trying to assert itself as the leading power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. So I'm struck by your framing of this geopolitical circumstance in terms of command of the maritime commons and the importance of sea lines of communication or SLOCs in the eyes of some of the key leaders, particularly the Anglo-American civilian and military leadership. I'd like to invite you to reflect a little bit, not so much about Alfred Thayer Mahan's influential book, The Influence of Sea Power on History, but specifically Mahan's influence on the concepts of sea power that the various great powers were bringing to the table as they confronted this interwar period. Mahan, when he was writing uh, before the First World War and his most influential book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, came out in 1890, there were changes taking place in the international security environment. 
the United States was rising up as a superpower. And this was recognized at the time. Uh, when Mahan's books were being written in the early 1890s, the United States economy was starting to, as an industrial power, was starting to outstrip Britain. Britain, the pioneer of the Industrial Revolution, country that was known as the workshop of the world, now the United States was becoming an industrial power on par and would soon outstrip Britain. Uh, and this was seen at the time in 1893, again, around the time that Mahan's books are coming out, early books are coming out on the influence of sea power. The United States held the great Columbian exhibition in Chicago to showcase, to highlight this World's Fair, American technology, industry, agriculture. Uh, so the United States is a rising superpower on the world stage was being highlighted by Mahan. Mahan wrote not only about navies and how navies fight, but he was also writing about changes in the international system and how Britain, which had been the dominant world power, the leading state of the international system in the 19th century, that Britain was being challenged by these other countries that had aspirations to world power. And in particular, the two big challengers were the United States and Imperial Germany. And so Mahan was writing about these changes in the underlying balance of power that was taking place at the time. Now, Mahan also then linked these changes in the international system to changes uh, in the strength of the uh, relative strength of the naval uh, strength of the great powers. Mahan believed that to be a world power, you also had to be a major naval power. Those two uh, would go together with each other. And hence, what you saw is a buildup of the U.S. Navy and the German Navy before the First World War. These views of Mahan that world power uh, is related to naval strength would continue through the First World War and into the interwar period as well. So there's a linkage between changes in overall balance of power, of industrial, economic strength, financial strength, uh, but also changes in the naval balance of power as well. They go together. You introduce your volume, The Road to Pearl Harbor, by urging readers to consider, quote, why the struggle for mastery in Asia resulted in a horrific conflict that cost the lives of millions, stressing the contingent nature of history and how decisions at key junctures shaped the road to Pearl Harbor and the war that ensued. How should we think about this role of contingency? Was the war between Japan and the Allies inevitable? That's a very good question, Isaac. And uh, this war was not inevitable. There were alternative outcomes. And so in the book, we try to highlight that there were off-ramps, ways in which uh, this war could have been avoided. One of the big uh, turning points uh, after the First World War was the Washington Conference of 1921 and 22. And at that conference, Britain, Japan, the United States were able to sit down in Washington a hundred years ago and work out a, a system of cooperation so that they could avoid conflict with each other. And so what they did was to look at problems in Asia, in particular, uh, what role China was going to play in the international system, but also to regulate the arms competition between the three of them, Japan, Britain and the United States to regulate their competition so that it didn't become so severe and threaten each other's security so much that it could become uh, an underlying cause for war. 
Before the First World War, it was thought that the rivalry for naval power between Britain and Imperial Germany had been one of the fundamental factors that led to war between Britain and Germany. And so the great powers, the United States, Britain, Japan, thought they should regulate that competition, they should make it less severe, so that it wouldn't become an underlying cause for war. The Washington system that was established that looked at territorial disputes in Asia, but also looked at this naval rivalry, provided a way for these three great powers to cooperate with each other. And so they created a system uh, at Washington that would last for about a decade and showed how Britain and the United States and Japan could cooperate with each other and avoid conflict. And so this is a great example of how the three powers worked to avoid conflict with each other. So thinking about that period in what we might call great power cooperation or attempted cooperation, you write memorably in, in the volume that, quote, a return to great power competition mocks the hopes for peace and security in Asia that had motivated the statesmen who'd assembled in Washington. So why was the arms control regime and diplomatic accords established at the Washington conference ultimately unsuccessful? The 1920s is an era of cooperation. What happens, though, is at the end of the 1920s, you see the Great Depression hit uh, the world economy, and all the major economies of the world suffer. And this leads to an increasing radicalization in some countries. Uh, we're most familiar with the radicalization, of course, that takes place in Europe with the rise of Hitler and the Nazi party and the Nazi seizure of power on January 30th, 1933. But you also see uh, in Asia as well, a radicalization that's taking place in slow motion over the 1930s in Imperial Japan and how Japan's leaders, naval and military, want to turn against cooperation with Britain and the United States. Meanwhile, Britain and the United States suffering also from the Great Depression their leaders were not eager to spend money on naval power. They wanted to continue to limit naval power because they wanted to curtail budgets on armaments. And that was very popular at the time as well in Britain and the United States. And so what you have here is a disparity in motivations taking place. Whereas British and American leaders want to curtail naval spending in Japan, you see an Imperial Japanese Navy that's able to get traction with the Japanese public that wants to build up its Navy. And again, it wants to build up its Navy, not for just the purposes of having a bigger Navy, but to be an enabler for Japan to expand its empire in Asia. To understand the interwar period, you have to understand just how important the Great Depression is in changing around this dynamic of cooperation into a new dynamic of hostility and confrontation. And so why did the specifically the tonnage of the various capital ships play such a central role in the way that Anglo-Americans and the Japanese viewed the, the balance of power? Was that sort of a proxy for the broader rivalry or was there expectation that actually strategically this was the main instrument by which they would maintain their command of the commons and maintain their, their uh, political systems? The, the interwar period sees a time of, of great technological change in how navies fight. The role of air power had uh, already been shown in the First World War 
to play a major role in combat operations, both on land and sea. It's amazing when you think about it that at Kitty Hawk, just a few years before the First World War, you have the first manned flight. Uh, by the end of the First World War, the great powers are building aircraft in the tens of thousands. So in a very short period of time, air power is becoming an important factor in determining outcomes of both warfare on land and at sea. Uh, before the First World War, the main measure of a country's naval strength were so-called capital ships, large surface warships, battleships, battle cruisers that uh, uh, carried the heaviest armament. Uh, by the end of the First World War, planners were looking to build battleships, battle cruisers, these large surface ships, uh, warships of about 50,000 tons displacement, mm -hmm. carrying nine 16-inch or nine 18-inch uh, artillery pieces. Uh, these battleships were seen as being the ultimate arbiter of warfare at sea. They were often referred to as the queen of the chessboard, uh, the metaphor that was used at the time. Uh, it's important to note, though, that because of the rise of air power, you also have the development of, well, what role will airplanes play in fighting wars at sea? Will airplanes just be grafted on and provide some long-range spotting for the battleships and the big guns? Or will aircraft be able, on their own, to reach out and sink these big battleships? So it's a period of technological and doctrinal change, the interwar period, and what you see is that uh, the role of aircraft, uh, aircraft carriers, but also aircraft based on land, playing and being seen to play a larger role in determining the outcome of battles at sea. So you have the traditional capital ship, the large surface ship with the big artillery uh, uh, guns, but you also have at the same time the development of aircraft carriers and land-based aircraft that can strike out and fight at sea as well. I'd also be curious to understand the role of undersea capabilities in this period, too, because it seems like we have this essentially traditional notion about tonnage for capital ships that are battleships with armaments for, for uh, land and sea attack. But now you have these two fundamentally different domains and technologies that support them. How did those factor into these Washington conference negotiations and did the advent of these technologies and their and their employment in the force lead to the erosion of that field? Submarines played a huge role in the First World War. Germany used submarines to reach out into the Atlantic, the waters around the United Kingdom, to sink merchant shipping tonnage, upon which the British economy, war effort, uh, depended. So no one underestimated the importance of submarines. At the same time, though, submarines were seen as the weapon of the weak, that the weaker naval power would employ submarines. The dominant naval powers, they sought to control the maritime commons, where submarines were a way of disrupting the maritime commons. And so Britain and the United States, they would like to see limitations on submarines because they want to try with their large navies to try to command the maritime commons, uh, to be able to use the seas to support their war efforts. Um, countries that are weaker, however, wanted to have large submarine forces. France, for example, that had a smaller navy than that of Britain, wanted to have a large submarine force. Japan, too, wanted to have a relatively large submarine force. 
Now, uh, given the role that submarines were to play in the Second World War, it's uh, uh, important to note that in the interwar period, it was thought that submarines wouldn't play the large role that they would play or that they had played in the First World War. There were new technologies coming along. The British were developing what we call sonar at the end of the First World War. And it was thought that the ability to see, if you will, uh, with sonar under the world's oceans, uh, under the sea, that submarines wouldn't be as effective. They could be detected and sunk. And so it was widely thought in the interwar period that submarines wouldn't play the large role that they had played in the First World War or that they would play in the Second World War, both in the Atlantic and in the Pacific. Mm. Certainly, World War II taught a different lesson about that capability. It, it, it did indeed. And Britain, in fact, at this time, uh, British uh, leaders tried to highlight just how sonar was being an effective new technology to counter the submarine threat. And other countries bought into that. They thought, well, mm-hmm. if the British think that they've mastered the submarine threat, then, well, submarines won't be that important or as important as they had been. Uh, and of course, the Second World War would show just how important submarines were in the next battle of the Atlantic as Nazi Germany tried to disrupt the sea lines of communication across the Atlantic. And also the United States, the world's leading naval power by the end of the Second World War, was using submarines aggressively to strangle the Japanese economy in the Western Pacific. So turning now to the chapter that you authored for this volume, specifically on Winston Churchill's role in this period and into the war, how would you characterize the challenge that was facing the British Empire in the interwar period and how how it looked as the war broke out across Europe? You know, Churchill stepped into the cockpit of a war raging over London and the demands of maintaining a far-flung empire across Asia. How did Churchill navigate uh, this strategic environment? And what specifically were his goals for British sea power in Asia? It's important to note that Churchill, throughout the interwar period, did not think it was inevitable that Japan and Britain would cross swords. In the 1920s, Churchill argued that a war with Japan was highly unlikely. From 1924 to 1929, Winston Churchill served as Chancellor of the Exchequer in the British Conservative government of Stanley Baldwin. Uh, At the time, in the late 1920s, the British Admiralty wanted to build up the British Navy so that it could confront, better confront Japan in the Western Pacific develop Singapore as a base, but also have the naval strength to be able to swing out a large fleet to Singapore to confront Japan if Japan became more aggressive. Churchill, wanting to hold down the Navy's budget, uh, wrote at the time, he said, a war with Japan, it won't happen in our lifetime. It's not going to happen. So again, in the late 1920s, British leaders thought there's not a great likelihood of a war with Japan. Well, again, the radicalization that takes place in Japanese domestic politics, the rise of a military regime in Japan that is more aggressive uh, in East Asia changes around Churchill's views. So his views of the late 1920s that a war with Japan was unlikely, all of a sudden Churchill becomes very much alert to the danger of Japan. And what I tried to do in my chapter was to highlight just how much Churchill wrote in the 1930s about the rising threat posed by Japan. We're more familiar with Churchill uh, speaking out 
about the dangers of Nazi Germany and Europe. But it's important to note that he was also writing articles at the time about uh, Japan as well. Churchill in the 1930s was probably the highest paid journalist in the world. Hmm. He wrote a great deal about international affairs and domestic politics. And so he has a track record of writing about Japan and matters in the Pacific, geopolitical problems in the Pacific. Now, Churchill's view was that Japan was unlikely to attack Britain so long as Britain was not at war in Europe. And so one thing that the book tries to highlight in several of the essays is just how important what goes on in Europe had a big impact on what would happen in Asia. Uh, it's important to link together events in Europe and in Asia because they were very much linked at the time in the minds of decision makers like Churchill, like Roosevelt, and also Jap uh, Japan's leaders as well. So uh, Churchill thought the great danger to the British Empire in Asia was that Britain tied down in a war in Europe would all of a sudden face a much more aggressive Japan. And that's exactly what happened. Churchill had the understanding to know that Britain, the British Empire, a very strong empire, nonetheless could not fight Germany and Italy and Europe and at the same time take on Japan. And so throughout the interwar period, Churchill was very clear that a war between the British Empire and Japan, that Britain would only be able to survive that war in Asia if the United States was an ally in that war against Japan. So the importance of U.S.-British relations are huge in the mind of Churchill in thinking about how to deter, but also how to wage war against Japan. Looking at Churchill's sense of how important the United States was in its overall global position and ability to deter or defeat Japan, as it were, in Asia. How did Churchill view the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor? What did that mean to him? Did he expect it? Uh, did he welcome it in some way? Churchill understood that the rising power of the United States uh, was a source of strength for the British Empire that could be harnessed. Uh, he had a much more positive view of the United States than what many British leaders had at the time. Uh, partly that's because his mother, Jenny Jerome, was an American. She was born in Brooklyn, New York. Mm -hmm. uh, so he had, and he also traveled in the United States. Uh, he did some lucrative lecture tours in the United States in his lifetime. And so he was familiar with the United States and had a good impression of the United States. But at the same time, he also realized, like many British leaders did, that the United States uh, was also very inward looking. That for Americans, that they have a choice of how much they want to be engaged in underwriting security commitments to a world outside of the Western Hemisphere. And so for Churchill, he understood that American leaders and public had to uh, see the dangers that the United States uh, would be facing both in Europe and Asia, across the Atlantic, across the Pacific. And so he understood that Americans were skittish and not likely to want to engage in wars in Europe and, and Asia. After all, in the First World War, the U.S. had sent a large expeditionary force, over two million men, to fight in France, and it was thought that war didn't solve anything. So in the United States, there was a strong isolationist uh, movement. 
So Churchill understood the importance of, uh, of American power and trying to bring American power to bear against these threats, common threats to the United States and the British Empire. Now, when Pearl Harbor occurred, that came as a surprise to Churchill. Now, they knew that Japan was going to go to war, but the attack on Pearl Harbor was a surprise. What was not a surprise was that Japan was going to attack Britain and the United States. Uh, after all, in the days before the outbreak of war, Japan had loaded up uh, soldiers on transports that were going across the South China Sea to invade Malaya and strike towards Singapore. The British were well aware that war was imminent. So were American leaders as well. Uh, it was thought, though, the focus of American and British leaders were on Singapore and on the Philippines, uh, on Guam, that these would be the places that Japan would attack. This attack on Pearl Harbor came as a big surprise. Of course, with the U.S. in the war, that was a great relief to Churchill because the big question mark was whether the U.S. would engage in a war against Japan or, for that matter, on Germany. And one side note is that while the United States on December 8th, 1941, declared war on Imperial Japan, we did not declare war on Nazi Germany. Hitler did that on December 11th when he went to the Reichstag and asked for a declaration of war against the United States. So initially, we go to war against Japan. Roosevelt is clear that it's likely to also mean a war with Germany, but Germany declares war on us first. Some fateful contingencies hatched in the minds of statesmen. Mm -hmm. I want to start in our, in our last couple minutes here, start edging us toward some of the echoes of this era onto the contemporary circumstances in the Pacific, or as we call it now, the Indo-Pacific. One entree into that strikes me that the British Empire that we've been talking about here in, in the eyes of Churchill was primarily an, an Indian Ocean Empire in a sense, an Atlantic as well as an Indian Ocean Empire, all of the crown jewels, as it were, of the British Empire across there. To what extent is this theater still look the same from the perspective of Anglo-American naval power and the challenges that they face from a rising power in the East? We, we tend to think of Britain, of course, as being a European power. But in this period of time, Britain was also, as you said, Isaac, uh, a, a major player in Asia. In fact, the journalist John Gunther at the time wrote a book, and the book starts by saying, well, as everybody knows, Britain is the greatest power in Asia. Uh, and it's because it controls South Asia, which is modern-day Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, also Malaya, Singapore, uh, big holdings in Shanghai, Hong Kong, of course, Australia, New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And so Britain is a major player at this time in uh, Asia. So looking at some of the resonances from that time to today, shifting over to naval warfare, just as the period between the interwar, the interwar period between the world wars was a time of technological and doctrinal change in how war is fought at sea, you see some of those, uh, some of that dynamic taking place today, of course. Uh, and one of the most important things that you see is just how forces based on land, missiles, uh, aircraft can range out and strike at surface ships at sea. One thing that Americans are not as aware of because we are so focused on Pearl Harbor is that we don't uh, recognize or pay as much attention to the destruction of the British force Zed, 
British Force Z were two capital ships, the battleship Prince of Wales and the battle cruiser Repulse. They were forward deployed to Singapore. Uh, after Japan went to war and invaded Malaya, these two capital ships sorted out into the South China Sea uh, to try to disrupt the Japanese invasion plans. On December 10th, several days after Pearl Harbor, they were struck by land-based Japanese naval aircraft operating from bases in what today is southern Vietnam, what was then French Indochina that Japan had occupied before the uh, outbreak of war with Britain and the United States. These land-based aircraft operating at uh, maximum range were able to bomb and torpedo the Prince of Wales and repulse and sink them. Again, here is a major naval engagement, but it's a naval engagement not between ships fighting each other, but between land-based aircraft operating against surface ships. And so the big takeaway there for us today is to think about how aggressive, how forward deployed do we want to have our surface ships to put them within an envelope of range of Chinese missiles, ballistic crews, as well as Chinese aircraft as well. So one of the big takeaways here is how what happens on land, forces deployed on land can range out and sink ships at sea. So we have to be aware of the, the risks to large surface ships when operating within range of these missile uh, uh, and air forces. Again, it came as a big surprise. Churchill recorded when he heard about the loss of the Prince of Wales and Repulse, he said it was the greatest shock that uh, he uh, had during the Second World War was the sinking of these two capital ships by land-based uh, aircraft. So we want to think about how new technologies are transforming uh, the war at sea. We also see the rise of China as a great power, aspirations to play a larger role in the world stage. And of course, Mahan would tell you that if you want to play that larger role in the world stage, you also have to have a larger navy. And so you see the buildup of China's navy as well in our own time. And this very much echoes earlier naval rivalries, uh, naval competitions before the First World War and before the Second World War. Again, it's important to highlight the contingent nature of history, Isaac, as you did earlier in our conversation, that nothing is inevitable about conflict. These arms competitions don't lead inevitably to war, but we have to understand how dynamics of these competitions can predispose leaders toward war. And also this ability to be able to strike with missile forces out to sea, how they increase the vulnerability of surface ships, which gets to the whole question of deterrence. Today, we like to talk about integrated deterrence. How far do you want to keep your naval forces forward deployed when they can become those deterrents can actually become targets of attack and might incentivize uh, a first strike by the other side? Thank you for laying out some of those parallels between that era of the 1930s and our contemporary circumstance. And it, it is certainly hard to miss some of them. But I wonder what you make of the temptation to, to sort of model our presence on past failures. To what extent are there key differences, I suppose, in the Pacific theater now? And here I'll, I'll tick off some of the similarities that I've heard from you and that you note in your book. We have a waning hegemon in the British Empire, who has, among other things, engaged in a long-term period of tech transfer, particularly naval arms and, and air power technologies, to a rising power. 
but has been ultimately uh, convinced that it needs to uh, change course and stop engaging with that rising power. And as well, that rising power, as you, as you explained in some detail here, has a suite of what they now call anti-access area denial capabilities, which are not so much naval forces. They're in fact, a, uh, what some people think of as an anti-Navy. Uh, it is a strategic package designed precisely to, to deny Anglo-American objectives in the region. So with, with those similarities intact, what do you see as like, mitigating factors in the present environment or some role for contingencies that didn't break in uh, a way conducive to peace that that may well be in effect today and maintaining some strategic stability. I think it's important to highlight that every analogy from the past to our own time breaks down. There Mm -hmm. are always enough differences between two different uh, eras of time that you can see that there are important differences as well. And one thing that the 20th century saw was that you had these two world wars that proved so destructive. And yet at the same time, before both world wars, leaders were very much aware of how interconnected the world economy was. Um, the famous book written before the first world war, the great illusion by the Nobel prize winner, uh, Norman angel highlighted that wars between great powers were proved to be ultimately economically suicidal, that uh, the well-being of peoples uh, would not be advanced by great powers going to war. They uh, trade with each other. They invest in each other. Peoples flow back and forth among these powers. And so these wars between great powers, they're going to... uh, Uh, no one will emerge from those wars as being a victor. And in fact, the so-called victors will be hobbled and hurt uh, as much as the losers uh, in the war. And of course, uh, Norman Angel highlighted that while war could still occur among great powers, he wanted to say it made no economic sense. And yet the great powers still went to war. Today, I think we're much more aware of how interconnected the global economy is, supply chains, how we depend on other countries uh, for our livelihood, for our daily bread, and just how important it is to avoid great power wars. So there's a greater consciousness today. Uh, One of the things that should be kept in mind that leaders before the First World War, if they could have envisioned what would have happened, the ruin that would have been brought upon their countries, they would have been more prudent and cautious in July of 1914. I think today's leaders are a little bit more prudent and cautious, or at least I hope they are. Of course, Putin has shown that his war in Ukraine, that you would think that why engage in a war like that where you can't control the outcome Again, there's miscalculation that can occur that can lead leaders to go into wars that prove very difficult to end. So I hope one of the big takeaways from studying history is to think that wars between great powers tend to be protracted, not end quickly, but have high costs involved. And so let's hope that leaders uh, in China, the United States, Japan, all have that prudence to understand that their actions that they take don't contribute to some spiral, to some trigger for war. Noble ambitions, I'm sure. I wonder if for a a last reflection, Professor Maurer, if you could help us 
scope down that question of, say, lessons of history and, and what what would you hope that leaders in Beijing learn specifically from the Japanese experience in the interwar and World War II and I suppose post-war period as well? What, what do you think a sensible historical lesson or lessons that they might take from that uh, might be? Well, when we think about deterrence, and I think uh, he, here it is important to think about how do you deter someone from going to war, that the hope would be that China's political leaders, if they are ever tempted to take an aggressive stance against Taiwan, that when they go to China's military leaders and say, what are the odds of victory, that the briefing that they get from the military leaders are that it's a low likelihood that the chances of winning quickly are not high. And hence, uh, they'll take that on board and say, maybe we don't want to do this because the odds are not good. In the Second World War in the Pacific, Japan's naval leaders believed that these first strikes that they were launching against the British in Malaya, against Pearl Harbor, against the Philippines, would lead to rapid success to be able to create a fait accompli that by seizing this territory that the British and the Americans would realize it's going to be very costly to recover from those early defeats and hence would not try to roll back those initial Japanese victories. Let's hope that China's political leaders, when they get a briefing from their military leaders, hear something much have their military leaders have different views and say, we're not going to have a short war. It won't be a quick war with low cost. It's likely to become uh, protracted. We also have to think, though, too, about uh, how China tries to deter the U.S. as well. Deterrence is uh, games that go on both sides. Again, Japan's leaders thought that by winning quick victories, that the United States would be deterred from making the effort to roll back these initial Japanese conquests. So uh, you could see where China's leaders might well say, yes, we can get a quick victory and Americans will then be deterred from wanting to escalate the conflict. And so we can gain a quick victory. So uh, deterrence works on both sides here, how both sides look at how they can deter the other from escalating and leading to a longer, more protracted and an age of nuclear weapons, much more dangerous war. Here's hoping that uh, both sides can learn some of these lessons of deterrence and preserve the peace in Asia. It's been really a privilege and a pleasure to have you join us here today on Sea Power. Thank you so much for sharing your erudition on this vital subject, and we wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you. Thank you, Isaac. Views presented here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense.